Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, I, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, no, nope. no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. Welcome back to Eyes Left. This is Mike Preisner coming to you from Los Angeles and joined by your co-host Spencer Pone all the way in New York City. Spencer, how have you been? Uh, I've been good, Mike. It's been a long month. Um, school's back in session now, of course. Uh, a lot of reading done uh, leading up to that. Uh, a lot of moving done, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we appreciate everyone's patience as we kind of worked through the last month. Both of our schedules kind of took over our lives for a bit there. Yeah, that's right. And if uh, if you're a patron, of course, we greatly appreciate your support. We're only able to do this show because of, of your support for all the hours of, of research and editing and recording and all that stuff. And so if, if you didn't see, if you're a patron, we paused the patron withdrawals for the month of September since we haven't uh, weren't able to do an episode at all last month. We wanted to make sure that we weren't getting a donation from you. If you didn't notice the email that you got about that, there you go. And so we'll do the same in the future. If we're not able to put out enough content, we'll uh, pause that donation for the month until we're able to record again. But here we are again. We're excited to be back, Spencer. A um, whole lot has happened in the time we've been gone, but obviously can't touch on it all, but have some really fun stories I think we're going to talk about today. Yeah, some fun, some not so fun, some horrifying. Uh, yeah, today's episode is going to kind of run the gamut uh, of everything. So that's, I mean, we're going to jump around from a few different things here and there. Just going to catch up uh, with each other, uh, with all you listeners. Try to get at everything as best as we can. Um, but to begin, part of why you've been so busy uh, recently, Mike, is that uh, your film project, of course, done alongside um, your partner, Abby, Gaza Fights for Freedom, has finally been released. Yeah, that's right. It's on GazaFightsForFreedom.com if you want to watch it. Um, But we're also in the process of planning a nationwide screening tour where Abby Martin and I are going to be traveling in person to cities across the country to screen the film in theaters, which is the best way to see it since we got, you know, we have it like professionally mastered in 5.1 surround sound. So it makes it just kind of a whole different experience to see it uh, in a theater. You know, you'll feel the demonstration in a way you couldn't watching it on your laptop or on your TV. Um, But we're going to be all over the country. And I hope that as many uh, Eyes Left listeners as possible uh, can join me at some of them. It was actually great when we premiered it in Los Angeles. There was several uh, listeners of Eyes Left that came to the premiere and who I got to meet in person. Of course, that was great. But uh, just to throw out a few dates... In September, we're going to be in Sacramento, Phoenix, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Denver, Salt Lake City, possibly Las Vegas and Reno. Then in October, we're going to be in San Jose. Uh, October 5th is booked in San Francisco at the Brava Theater. Going to be in Seattle and then all the East Coast cities, New York, D.C., Boston, Philly, going to be in New Hampshire. Um, And then, of course, we're going to be in Canada a little bit, Toronto and Montreal. Um, But then in November, we plan to be in the South through Florida, Georgia, Texas, North Carolina, and all of those. And so I'll be promoting the the tour list soon. And so it'd be cool if we could could see you face-to-face there. But Spencer, um, you had a chance to watch the film, huh? I did. Uh, It was, um, of course, uh, an incredible uh, work. I I think it's, um, you know, I study history, specifically history of the Middle East. I I think it will go a long way uh, in contextualizing the Palestinian struggle for um, statehood writ large, but also specifically uh, just how 
uh, inhumane uh, Gaza is, uh, you know, an open air prison. Um, and, and some of the footage, I mean, it should be said, is, is quite intense. Mm-hmm. And, and you see just, you know, uh, Palestinians of all ages, you know, men, women, and children who are united uh, trying to, you know, uh, make a claim for their own collective dignity uh, as human beings and just being absolutely ravaged uh, by the Israeli uh, defense forces. And, you know, e- even s- some of the uh, the clips, uh, you know, where you could see uh, many of the IDF soldiers who are actually delighting uh, in the way uh, they're inflicting, you know, wanton violence on, on so many uh, innocent people. Um, I- I'd also say it's also... Um, a very effective at disentangling a lot of the uh, Israeli uh, propaganda when it mm. comes to uh, uh, Palestine, when it comes to Hamas. Um, well, I mean, when it comes to the politics of the Middle East, even. Uh, and, and I think the film, through narration and through uh, argumentation, uh, a lot of these uh, nonsensical claims against the Palestinians and what they're presented as are refuted, but also just by nature. Uh, of the footage itself. I mean, you could kind of see the reality uh, of the situation. So yeah, I also implore everyone uh, to please get a chance uh, to watch it, you know, either digitally or uh, on any of those touring dates, you know, have a more uh, cinematic experience. I think it's an important film and I'm, you know, I I was definitely moved by it. And hopefully uh, it could do some small part in uh, fostering a larger shift uh, in the American consciousness and the world consciousness and understanding uh, you know, the Palestinian struggle, especially with regards to how it looks on the ground uh, in Gaza. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that, Spencer. And I'm, I'm really happy you watched it. And uh, it's re- just really great to hear, you know, like there's so many subtle details and information, yeah. you know, that we were worried would, would be lost on people. We thought we that we thought were important. And so it's just great to hear your reaction to it. Cause like you caught all the little things we stuck in there, hoping that it got across to people. Um, you know, and it's, it's just full, you know, like every sentence we obsessed over. And so it's, it's full of uh, all the most important details we thought. And, you know, you're right. It's like, it's, it, when you talk about Gaza, it's like, it's so difficult to do documentaries on Gaza. And there's a lot of them out there. I mean, there are a lot of documentaries about Gaza. And so we, we were, we had the challenge of doing something that wasn't like other documentaries about Gaza. And it's difficult because there is just so much suffering in Gaza. It's, and you really can't just focus on suffering, right? Um, right. And, and misery and violence and all of these things. Like that tends to be all filmmakers can focus on when it comes to Gaza. But there, of course, is so much more. And so we uh, tried our best to show all the other aspects of life in Gaza, but also like the power and optimism of the Gaza people, right? Like if you like living under the conditions that they live in, which we can't even get into here. And the film does really just scratch the surface of them. You would think that living under those horrible conditions that you would just be demoralized and you'd really give up. But I, I think what the, the thing that I like most about what we're able to show is that people in Gaza haven't given up. And and they are they are optimistic about the future. They believe that they can be free, and they're and they're deter- they're they're in this fight with um with like love and passion and hope for the future, not out of just desperation. And and they they have nothing else to do. And so we hope that really came across. And and like you know we really we had so much intense crazy footage from the demonstrations, both that our videographers in Gaza shot, um, but also from so much other footage that exists out there. And we made sure we didn't show any death in the, we didn't show anyone die in in the film, even though we had that, that footage. And so even some of the intense things where I know there's one scene where it looks like someone dies, but the, we didn't, we made sure that we didn't show anyone actually uh, who was killed at the demonstrations. Um, 
And, you know, we used some animation to show, to commemorate people who had died and, and things like that. But, you know, one of the things, but the last thing I wanted to say about it is, you know, since you brought up kind of the history part and, you know, that, that history section where we use, it was amazing for me because I followed this topic for a long time. You know, I went to Gaza in 2009, right after the right. war. And so I've seen it myself. Um, but I, we found all this archival footage from before the Nakba, before the 67 war, during of Gaza. And it was just like incredible shit. Like I could not believe this footage existed. And so we use a, a lot, you know, we have like about a 10 minute history section in this film, but it really re showed me how inaccessible this kind of history is because that footage, Spencer, all the black and white footage of, of that era, uh, mm -hmm. that to, to license that footage, it cost $50 a second to license it from Reuters because it's all wow. owned by Reuters. So in a 10 minute segment, <sighs> you do the math, how much, uh, how much oh, that no, costs. That's, <laughs> wow. That's obscene. Yeah. It's nuts. And it. they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't compromise on prices. We wouldn't give us a deal. If we're just like, we're just a grassroots, whatever. So like so much of the money we raised was to be able, but you know, but we felt it was important to be able to show, and actually it was a lot longer and we had to cut it down to something that was more affordable, but that just shows how it's so weird that like history can be inaccessible like that. And this is stuff that no one had really seen before and no one that I've shown the film to had ever seen that kind of footage before. So I think just for that little section alone, it's kind of a, a valuable piece of history. And I, I hope others are able to get as much out of it as, as we did making it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, one more note, the, um, the evidence you provided um, for the, you know, the, the just nature of the Palestinian national liberation movement, I mean, even within the confines of this current world system, I mean, you guys cite um, a particular uh, section from a United Nations uh, plenary meeting, which, you know, recognizes uh, the universal realization of the right of peoples to self-determination. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, just what's, what's so perverse about it is that even within the confines of the existing world order, what the Palestinians are carrying out should be universally, globally recognized as just mm -hmm. and and morally upstanding. And yet here we are still trying to have this battle of narratives when on the ground people are suffering uh, in accordance with the rights they're afforded to them. Yeah. You know, it, within the existing system, let, let alone trying to build a more just, you know, world order. You know, if you, you could... You could take up that perspective, sure, and, you know, both of us do in some capacity, but even given what the world we live in now is, there should be no reason why justice uh, uh, is not meted out uh, in Palestine. Yeah, you know, that's that's a great point. Like, it's if it, protesters at the Great March of Return were shooting at the IDF troops, that's actually protected, legitimate, legal resistance. I mean, if you're under occupation, occupying forces, military targets are legitimate targets. I mean, they're not shooting at, they wouldn't be shooting at civilians. They're, they would be shooting at occupying soldiers who are illegally occupying. I mean, that's, that's legitimate. But I think the, the sad thing is, is that when this, when the, the protests, there was two major days where a lot of people were killed, May 14th and June 1st in 2018. And so in those days, you know, like 60 unarmed protesters killed in a single day by, by Israeli snipers, you know, children, people in wheelchairs, medics, people marked journalists, really egregious war crimes. It got a lot of press those days because it was it was so egregious it had to be covered. But what many people have, may have forgotten is that the protests have not stopped. They happen every single Friday. 
This Friday, there's going to be a protest. Last Friday, there was a protest. And every single protest, the same exact thing happens. People go unarmed. They're killed by Israeli snipers. Um, and in large numbers, and, and in fact, many children, disabled people, medics, journalists, and all of them are unarmed civilians. But in particular, I mean, very specific, even more protected categories are killed on a weekly basis also. And so this isn't something that just is, is talking about something that happened last year. It's focus is on 2018, but it's something that is ongoing every single week. And so that's why it's um, something people should learn about because it's happening and with our tax dollars. I mean, there's so much of our tax money goes right. to military, to Israel to buy all those bullets being used, uh, exploding bullets, mind you. You know, it's like crazy right. that the snipers aren't just shooting people with sniper rounds from rifles. They're using, exp all the bullets they're using are exploding bullets. They're not using anything but exploding bullets. This is just insane. I mean, even when I was in Iraq, Spencer, right, like within like six months, some special forces guys had got ambushed uh, in the, the little town I was in. Uh, they shot the, one of the guys that had ambushed them, shot him like in the back of the leg, but they had like those dum-dum rounds, those exploding bullet rounds. Oh, uh, okay. And so the guy yeah. died and then they yanked those guys quick out of the country. And they were like, oh shit, this is going to be a big scandal. You used exploding bullets. Right. And it was like a big deal and the guys got in trouble. We didn't know what happened to them. So like even, <laughs> even under those circumstances, like, ah, you can't use exploding bullets. Um, and then, you know, the, the litany of war crimes the U.S. was committing at the time, like that seemed like nothing compared to everything else the U.S. was doing, but it was still like, oh my God, exploding bullets, we can't get caught for this. That's why they rushed him out of the country. Yet, the Israeli sniper rifles are only loaded with exploding bullets. It's just, just well, a little I taste mean, of what the, the depth that this goes. Again, you know, when you know you have Palestinians operating within the full range of their rights that the United Nations General Assembly affirms uh, with regards to national liberation, and on the other side, you have you know Israeli forces using exploding bullets and other you know horrific. Uh, tactics uh, and um, weapons of war or materials of war. I mean, it, it's completely uh, absurd. I mean, and, and it, it can't do anything else but stir outrage uh, in anyone who has a conscience. Even if you you know you don't study the region, even if you're not as uh, uh, you know uh, up to snuff on on the politics uh, of the Middle East, specifically the uh, Palestinian National Liberation Movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's just absolutely um, stunning that this uh, continual domination of a people striving for just a shred of dignity uh, is allowed to occur. But uh, I think, um, you know, nothing is written historically. I think we are hopefully going to see the realization of justice someday. And hopefully, you know, uh, this film will do some part. And, you know, again, like, as I said before, creating a wider appreciation of the situation over there and, you know, just shining a light on, on how important uh, this conflict is and how vicious the Israelis have been towards the Palestinians. Yeah, I hope so too, Spencer. Um, again, you can go to GazaFightForFreedom.com to check it out. But in addition to uh, the film and your schoolwork, Spencer, have you still been mainlining the truth about Epstein? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. You know, when we look at all of it, I mean, since we talk, I mean, so much has happened in that case alone, um, you know, when we had spoken, uh, he he was still alive, of course. So him right. well, yeah, dying, no wow. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is a pretty significant turn. I, I, it, here's the thing. I mean, many great folks out there doing other podcasts. I mean, other. I mean, specifically uh, Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald. She's the one who's been uh, writing about this and blew this wide open for you. I mean, she's done amazing works, and so please look up her work on this to get a uh, an appreciable perspective. And there's a lot of different journalists. Um, uh, out there who are, who have discussed this at length, but in general, you know, when you look at it, you had to 
grapple with the fact that we're not being told, of course, the full story of it. And, and the key thing that I want to emphasize, though, is that despite all of that, you got to find a way to, you know, to maintain a hold on your critical faculties, because obviously there is some degree of foul play involved. Uh, to what extent, we don't know. I mean, Acosta himself said uh, when Epstein was originally uh, tried in Florida that he was informed that Epstein belonged to intelligence. So, I mean, and we've discussed this, Mike, from my assessment, I mean, he is quite clearly some uh, intelligence asset of some sort. What that exactly entails, you know, we don't know yet, but he clearly had protections afforded to him uh, by varying intelligence agencies. He, we know that there was a massive child trafficking ring of which he was the leader of, and it involved other uh, world leaders and very powerful people. What's so, I guess, still such a mystery, and we're all still trying to figure out, is who exactly is this guy, Jeffrey Epstein? Where did he come from? How did he achieve such a degree of influence? And from everything I've listened to, I've read, it seems to me as if he probably... Uh, he was selected um, around the time he was teaching at the Dalton School, it seems like. But uh, I just want to read a short excerpt mm -hmm. um, from uh, a book called The Power Elite, which was written by the American sociologist uh, C. Wright Mills. Um, and on page 15 of that book, uh, and this uh, particular section of the book is called The Higher Circles, he says... <clears throat> Nowadays, we must qualify the idea of elite as composed of higher types of individuals. For the men who are selected for and shaped by the top positions have many spokesmen and advisors and ghosts and makeup men who modify their self-conceptions and create their public images, as well as shape many of their decisions. There is, of course, considerable variation among the elite in this respect, but as a general rule in America today, it would be naive to interpret any major elite group merely in terms of its ostensible personnel. The American elite often seems less a collection of persons than of corporate entities, which are in great part created and spoken for as standard types of personality. Even the most apparently freelance celebrity is usually a sort of synthetic production turned out each week by a disciplined staff, which systematically ponders the effect of the easy ad-libbed gags mm. the celebrity spontaneously echoes. Yet, insofar as the elite flourishes as a social class or as a set of men at the command posts, it will select and form certain types of personality and reject others. The kind of moral and psychological beings men become is in large part determined by the values they experience and the institutional roles they are allowed and expected to play. From the biographer's point of view, a man of the upper classes is formed by his relations with others, like himself in a series of small intimate groupings through which he passes and to which throughout his lifetime he may return. So conceived, the elite is a set of higher circles whose members are selected, trained, and certified, and permitted intimate access to those who command the impersonal institutional hierarchies of modern society. If there's any one key to the psychological idea of the elite, it is that they combine in their persons and awareness of impersonal decision-making with intimate sensibilities shared with one another. To understand the elite as a social class, we must examine a whole series of smaller face-to-face -face milieu, the most obvious of which historically has been the upper-class family, but the most important of which today are the proper secondary school and the Metropolitan Club. Uh, so in other words, when you engage with something like uh, the Epstein situation or like with Jimmy Savile uh, back in the mm -hmm. UK, 
we need to be keenly aware of how these social circles um, are an intimate setting for a particular class of people and how they shape each other, how they groom each other, and how they have all of their own ideological uh, underpinnings uh, within. Some Karl Marx being determines consciousness there. Um, That's right. And that's why, like, you know, Epstein's, like, black book, you know, of all his contacts and the flight logs of people that went on the Lolita Express. Like, you know, it's all... It's like you, it shows how the ruling class circles like are, you know, the ruling class isn't that that big. You know, you can kind of fit them all in one auditorium. And so the kind of social interactions that they had together are, you know, it's it's the web kind of gets pretty small when you when you look at, you know, those those flight logs and, and his book and everything. And I think to some people like, you know, the idea that he was like intelligence or an agent for the CIA and things like that just might seem like far-fetched because like, you know, what, why? Like, what was he doing for the CIA? Like, obviously, maybe he was just a, just a rich uh, pedophile guy who <laughs> used his, his money and power for, for these things. Like, why does it make sense that he's an agent? Um, but I think people who have the perspective of, more of a perspective on what U.S. intelligence really does, it's obvious that he was an agent. I mean, uh, Spencer, I know that you uh, had to get a secret security clearance being in special operations. I had to get a top secret security clearance, although I, the investigation took so long, they approved it like the day before I got out of the military. But when they when they do their background check for a security clearance, to be able to get a security clearance being in, the, in, the, in a U.S. agency or, or military, all they do is they investigate your past, not to see if you've done anything wrong. They don't really care what you've done they care if there's anything in your past that you can be blackmailed for. So gambling debt, if you owe people money, if you've ever had, uh, if there is photos of you uh, with uh, uh, young women that can be used to blackmail you. If you're having an affair, that could be used to blackmail you. Like drug use, that could be used to blackmail you. I mean, that's why like the CIA, one of their top schools for recruitment is Brigham Young University, the Mormon college, because uh, typically Mormons, they don't have a lot in their past they can be blackmailed for. So it's all about whether or not you can be blackmailed, which is what qualifies you for security clearance in the US. Likewise, a lot of the intelligence work that the CIA does is getting information with which to blackmail powerful people in other countries. So Epstein was just a huge source for that, right? He had the most powerful princes of Saudi Arabia coming to his island. He had the princes of the United Kingdom coming to his island. All of these major capitalist powers and resource producing powers, all of the most powerful politicians and oligarchs in the world were coming to Epstein's island. And on Epstein's island, there'd be a lot of blackmail information that Epstein would be able to get about all these people. So then the CIA, I, to me, what happens was, the CIA was like, okay, this guy's running a sex trafficking ring, um, but, and you know, he's raping young women, uh, you know, in all sorts of ways. And all these people are coming here to rape young women. Um, but you know what? We'll let this massive child sex trafficking ring operate in ex and let this guy live this lifestyle if we can, ex in exchange, get dirt on this prince of Saudi Arabia and this prince of the United Kingdom, and then we can go to them at whatever point we need to and say, hey, we know you were doing this, this at Epstein's. Why don't you tell us what's going on in MI6 or within your government that we don't know about, and then we won't make any of this information public? And, and again, like, there's so much that everyone, you know, has been speculating about. And, and as someone, you know, who you know, uh, is an aspiring uh, historian who likes to adhere to uh, the nature of the discipline and the tenets of it. And all. Yeah, I, I'm always inclined to, you know, we need to have some actual uh, factual basis for what we're discussing in order to present a thesis and then our analysis therein. But I, I mean, at any rate, 
<clears throat> whatever we do or do not know uh, with Epstein, it's undeniable that he was running a child sex trafficking ring and that the federal government uh, had knowledge of it, as well as many state governments um, mm-hmm. and local governments, as well as the police forces of all those different mm-hmm. echelons. I mean, he was already a, tried and convicted uh, as a pedophile. Mm-hmm. And, and so the fact that he was able to reassimilate back into uh, high society is, is as condemning as anything else with regards to him. Uh, and it's just, it's so frustrating because, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, we're all trying to figure this out. And, and I think a lot of people are motivated by uh, the feeling of, you know, wanting to see justice for the victims. And that's what it should come down to, right. centering the struggles uh, in the horrible uh, situation that the victims had to undergo. And, and I want to say, you know, when, when you read about this case and when you study it, and you do your own research, you know, you, you need to be very careful that it doesn't become something of a voyeuristic impulse. You know, we need mm. to be very committed to wanting to see justice meted out. But again, as I said, we got to maintain a handle uh, on our critical faculties. And, and I, I brought a, not along for this episode another excerpt from a very important, almost forgotten uh, essay uh, in my mind. There was this uh, figure. He was a German-Jewish Marxist theorist who was associated with the Frankfurt School uh, for some time. And he, he wrote a lot of great studies um, analyzing um, Nazi Germany um, and understanding uh, different political movements themselves, how they work. His name was Franz Neumann. And he, he died actually quite uh, young at the age of 54. And uh, he wrote primarily in German. But in 1957, as part of as part of his book, uh, The Democratic and the Authoritarian State, there was this essay in it by the name of Anxiety in Politics. And in that, he talks about the uh, conspiracy theory of history. Mm. And so I bring this up because when we discuss these cases, we don't want ourselves to you know, start sounding like QAnon types or, you know, these right-wing <laughs> lunatics who just conjure up things completely out of, yeah. whole, like, or they just completely conjure up, you know, these nonsensical notions with, which make no sense. And they're not based, we still need to exist within reality. But the reason why conspiracy theories that take something that does truthfully happen and they get expanded into something larger is because there is a kernel of truth to them. And right. so on some level, you understand why. Some of the people who lose their mind when they study this case and, and they just start <laughs> spouting off all these other things, you, you kind of recognize why this happens because there is a degree of truth. That there's no doubt that this person, Jeffrey Epstein, was the head of a child sex trafficking ring and the government, the federal government uh, and its highest agencies and echelons allowed it to persist in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to read this excerpt from... Uh, this section of the essay called Anxiety and Politics by Franz Neumann, and, uh, known as the Conspiracy Theory in History. He begins by uh, characterizing and defining this notion of Caesaristic identification, uh, which is just this idea of the, well, he says, Caesaristic identifications may play a role in history when the situation of masses is objectively endangered, when the masses are incapable of understanding the historical process, and when the anxiety activated by the danger becomes neurotic, persecutory, or aggressive anxiety through manipulation. From this follows, first of all, that not every situation dangerous uh, to the masses must lead to a seizuristic movement. It follows further that not every mass movement is based on anxiety, and thus not every mass movement need be seizuristic. Thus, it is a question of determining the historical conditions in which a regressive mass movement 
under a Caesar tries to win political power. Now, I'll pause there because I think uh, Trump fits the definition of a Caesaristic uh, leader <laughs> with the way that many <clears throat> of his supporters have identified with him, including the QAnon types, which lead them to then conclude uh, that Trump isn't associated with Epstein, even though there's videos of him partying with Epstein, uh, even though there's quite a bit of um, evidence that suggests they did have contact with each other. Um, and so, you know, rather than coming to the conclusion that figures such as Bill Clinton, that mm -hmm. Trump, that Prince Andrew, they all have associations with uh, Epstein. They, they tend to allow themselves to, um, you know, stop from actually getting a holistic picture. But I want to continue again. And this is for our listeners' edification that, yes, we need to critically examine these issues, but we also need to maintain a hold on um, careful analysis uh, and the reality we live in. So Neumann continues by saying, however, before we describe these historical situations, I may perhaps point to a clue which will frequently permit us an early diagnosis of the regressive character of such a mass movement. This clue is the view of history which the masses and the leaders employ. It may be called the conspiracy theory of history, a theory of history characterized by a false concreteness. The connection between Caesarism and this view of history is quite evident. Just as the masses hope for their deliverance from distress through absolute oneness with a person, so they ascribe their distress to certain persons who have brought this distress into the world through a conspiracy. The historical process is personified in this manner. Hatred, resentment, dread created by great upheavals are concentrated on certain persons who are denounced as devilish conspirators. Nothing would be more incorrect than to characterize the enemies as scapegoats, as often happens in the literature, for they appear as genuine enemies whom one must extirpate and not as substitutes whom one only needs to send into the wilderness. It is a false concreteness and therefore an especially dangerous view of history. Indeed, the danger consists in the fact that this view of history is never completely false, but always contains a kernel of truth and indeed must contain it if it is to have a convincing effect. The truer it is, one might say, the less regressive the movement, the falser, the more regressive. It is my thesis that wherever affective, in other words, Caesaristic leader identifications occur in politics, masses and leader have this view of history, that the distress which has befallen the masses has been brought about exclusively by a conspiracy of certain persons or groups against the people. With this view of history, true anxiety, which had been produced by war, want, hunger, anarchy, is to be transformed into neurotic anxiety and is to be overcome by means of identification with the leader demagogue through total ego renunciation to the advantage of the leader and his clique, whose true interests do not necessarily have to correspond to those of the masses. And he goes on to say, of course, I cannot provide conclusive proof, but I have, but I believe that by pointing to certain historical events, I can make clear the connection between this view of history and Caesarism. Well, the moment we're living in right now, <laughs> Trump's, uh, Trump's class interests are clearly diametrically opposed uh, to the majority of the Americans, and yet he does have a sizable uh, minority contingent of them who are very supportive of him. Um, so Trump could be uh, a wealthy uh, businessman who was given everything in life, and yet those who support him might not have that same class background at all, and yet they believe that he's acting in their interest. On the same token, uh, Trump can have direct ties to Epstein, which suggests, uh, and through other accusations against him, that he is a unsavory uh, sexual predator and sexual abuser, and yet those who support him could choose not to look at that and identify 
with what he presents to be his own uh, truth uh, and reality. So again, I leave you with this Neumann piece and in our discussion, how brief it might be on the Epstein case to say, uh, it's a burning story that's going to be talked about in the coming days for a long time, but we need to make sure that you know, we're not doing uh, the work of the ruling class by obfuscating uh, the reality, by, you know, turning against each other and getting so wrapped around the actual that we're actually missing what's happening uh, in terms of, you know, this case's connection to this capitalist epoch, you know, we're living in and this national government and its policy agenda. You know, people, I think that the fact that Epstein has died, that there's still victims that are alive. And I mean, the fact that he was killed or, or whatever happened, um, that doesn't mean that this case should be forgotten about or right. just remembered in the sense of like how crazy of a story it is and like who's going to make the first documentary about it and all that stuff. Like there's people who need justice, right? Who, you know, Jeffrey Epstein died and left behind many billions of dollars. The, all of the women that he abused and trafficked and all of that should be entitled to all of those billions of dollars. And all of the people that were involved in the protection operation, including in our own government, the people that that told uh, Acosta, the judge that gave Epstein, um, you know, house arrest for uh, being convicted as a, for for raping underage girls. He was ordered by someone to give him that. Like, you know, who are, who are all these people and how do we bring uh, hold them accountable? Like just the fact that Epstein's gone you know, doesn't mean shit. And I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, as you were mentioned earlier, Spencer, about the kind of the loss of the focus on victims and, and the focus on just how crazy this case is. I mean, that's been one of the, the hard things about the Me Too movement is it's yeah. successful when you could focus it on a, a powerful person where then the story becomes about that person unless they're too powerful or they don't get taken down by it, like Joe Biden, like Woody Allen, you know, very... Yeah credible sexual assault uh, claims have come out about them, but sometimes you're you're too big to fail uh, if you're accused of the Me Too stuff. And I think one of the important things that was done to try to break through that was uh, the Unite Here Union. Unite Here is a, an amazing nationwide union that represents uh, workers, particularly in the hotel industry. And when the, many don't remember, when the Me Too movement started and there was this new public consciousness about assault and, you know, of course, it targeted powerful men in Hollywood. Unite Here launched this campaign that was like women who clean hotel rooms are sexually assaulted at a really insane rate by hotel guests, by hotel uh, executives and things like that. And they, they tried to they tried to give the, that movement this kind of working class component. Um, and in fact, the most vulnerable workers, mostly immigrant women um, who working in cleaning these hotel rooms, making very low wages. And it was never able to be picked up on because there weren't these like enemy figures that were able to be focused on. And so, you know, I think the Epstein thing is just just another example of that. There's so many uh, people who are left in the wake of this. Um, and now that the person we can focus on as the villain is gone, it ignores that entire apparatus, like in the case of the Unite Here campaign, the entire apparatus and infrastructure that allows that to happen. How women at work couldn't report the sexual assaults, nothing would happen to the guests, nothing would happen to the boss of the hotel, all of these things. There's, there's an infrastructure and a network and that's inherent to patriarchy and capitalism, that there's these structures that exist where you can't even really break through in a legal way to be able to get accountability. Yeah, and again, at the end of the day, it's completely, you know, bonkers. It's bananas when you, you see this guy who's, you know, on, on suicide watch and six six days later, he's found <laughs> dead. I mean, there's, there's the issue with the um, the cop from Westchester County yeah, uh, who somehow <laughs> yeah, had access. I mean, it just is, you know, it's... It, it's it's almost like you know, 
it's so insane in such a way that it benefits those in power because it makes you lose your mind trying to grapple with it all. But again, at the end of the day, the goal of all of this should see justice given uh, to the victims who had to suffer at the hands of this guy and all of his associates like Maxwell, um, who's out there still. Um, oh, yeah. Les Wexner, uh, who's most likely the person who gave uh, Epstein um, – his starting position uh, or helped stand him up as a figure in high society. I mean, he's the one who gave him the mansion on the Upper East Side uh, for free. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all all of these figures, and again, the political leaders we've already mentioned, um, anyone who uh, is in some way attached or beholden to uh, the ruling class, uh, you know, and and this like capitalist society, of course, Mm -hmm. one should be suspicious of them just in general, but especially uh, when you see the details of this case. But again, you know, Keep a grip on things. You know, we're all united in trying to fight for a better world, but let's not um, allow ourselves to turn into the parodies, uh, the self-parodies that the QAnon types and and others like them uh, are. Well, Spencer, we got a few uh, military news stories, just some quick bulletins to go through uh, to keep people up to speed and what's going on in the the Pentagon news uh, bulletin. One of those, kind of an interesting story that I just saw, says the un- the U.S. unleashes the military to fight fake news. <laughs> you know, the, basically what's happening is the Pentagon is creating a unit where officially the military, many uh, members of the military are going to be tasked, uh, you know, people in the Pentagon are going to be tasked with going through like Facebook ads and tweets to determine whether or not they are quote unquote fake news. I guess what's so frustrating about this story is um, is this whole idea of fake news. I, mean, I don't know if people recall it originally was used um, by the Democrats yeah. uh, against Trump, right? And uh, in typical fashion, you know, being this like it's almost like the blob, like they threw that at him, and he just like completely absorbed it, reassimilated it, and then he wielded it back against and and now you know we're living in this era where i mean we have been for a while where the, the nature of of truth uh and and careful argumentation are are hardly going to move the needle anymore but now more than ever i mean you see why this claim of fake news was such a a specious argument to begin with i mean the many of the 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 majority of the news agencies that run the show in this country mm-hmm. are for profit okay yep. and these for profit news networks have you know, they sold you a war in 2003 with Iraq. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and they continue to distort the the reality uh, in the present day, um, the historical reality. So th- this idea uh, of fake news is always so frustrating because it misses the entire point of how all of these for-profit news channels have, a, have an agenda. Um, and th- they have uh, particular figures who are either part of or associated with um, the capitalist class uh, with whom they're beholden to. The way that they frame it is it's interference in our democracy, right? And so Russian trolls who are sowing discontent and reducing confidence in our system, that's undermining our democracy, right? You know, like MSNBC, CNN, they like went to Florida and confronted Trump supporters on their doorsteps being like, you shared this meme on Facebook that was created by someone in Albania, an Albanian troll who was trying to influence our election. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, that didn't make me a Trump supporter. I was already a Trump supporter. I would have shared any meme that came across my Facebook page that was making fun of Hillary Clinton. You know what I mean? So it's just like created this kind of weird, weirdly false thing about how our democracy was undermined because um, there was like a meme of like a swole Bernie Sanders with his shirt off that was supposedly created by Russian trolls 
that influenced our election somehow. It just like the whole thing is absurd that that's that that even influences our election. But the way that it's actually used, right? That's the auspice, right? Is this idea that Trump didn't really win? Russia really made right. Trump win. The American yeah, people it, didn't want Trump to be the president. But the way it's actually used is to take down accounts when there's a political struggle that uh, are against the Pentagon. Um, so it's fitting now that the Pentagon is officially in charge of determining what's fake news or not. So for example, when the, the coup in Venezuela was, was taking off, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook just removed hundreds of accounts that were deemed fake news. They weren't fake news. They were pro-government accounts. They even deleted the president of Venezuela's Twitter account, his English account, for being no. fake news. Um, the same thing's happening with uh, with Hong Kong, right? I mean, of course, there's of course there's lots of complexities to the Hong Kong protest. It's not a black and white thing, but hundreds of accounts that were pro Chinese government, of which there's a lot, because I think the Chinese government has something like a ninety percent favorability rating. There's hundreds of so called pro China accounts were deemed fake news and removed from Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and, and things like that. So they practically use it as a way as part of their propaganda operation when they are are trying to to get some kind of regime change operation or you know destabilization efforts and things like that um but again and again it also kind of plays into the whole you know siphoning of energies against trump into this belief that russia stole our election through this fake news operation right i mean this is kind of similar to what happened with watergate where under Nixon, you know, there was a massive social movement against Nixon, against the war, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge grassroots upswell that was increasingly militant, increasingly successful. And then when Watergate happened, they were able to turn everything into focus everyone on Watergate. Like here was the transgression, the system can solve it, da 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 da. And then they tried to suck up a large sector, the more liberal sector as a social movement into focusing on Watergate. Same when Trump won the election, I was like, oh damn, it's going to be like George W. Bush time again. Like everyone's going to be in the streets. It's going to be a huge, there's such a political crisis for the establishment. But they, and even the Democrats, they wanted to siphon all of that into this, no, it was Russia. This wasn't really the system. And we have to focus on getting Russian out of our, Russia out of our politics and, and things like that. It has this two-pronged thing, right? It allows the U.S. government and the U.S. military to censor people that they say are fake, that conflict with their plans. And then it also says to the social movements and liberal sectors of the social movements, uh, back us in our plan to combat the attack on our democracy. And that's how we're going to get rid of Trump. I mean, aside from the fact that it just shows the complete abdication of responsibility on the part of uh, the, the Democratic Party generally and Hillary Clinton specifically, with how they refused to um, effectively campaign uh, in the states that cost them the election uh, in 2016. I mean, the notion of of the news being this authentic uh, journalistic source is also just not entirely historically viable. And mm -hmm. I don't mean to downplay the significance of, of Trump's rhetoric and the present age we live in, but I mean, Edward Bernays, uh, the yep. father of... Um, what's called public relations, which is essentially just, you know, a form of manufacturing consent in the mm -hmm. public. I mean, he played an instrumental role uh, in the way that uh, 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 that Guatemala was presented to the American public uh, in the early 50s, which, right. of course, led to the 1954 uh, coup d'etat uh, in Guatemala, which, you know, the U.S. Uh, and that organization, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, had a major hand in. So uh, it, it's very insulting when you read these stories because it's just it's it's not only spitting in the face uh, of, you know, the majority of Americans and, and, you know, people in the world, but also it completely spits in the face uh, of the historical record uh, and, and of any uh, factual, reasonable uh, uh, grasp on how, uh, 
you know, this society actually functions. That's right. Uh, next little stuff. This isn't so much a story, Spencer, but it's something I saw that I just thought was kind of you know, oh, yeah. another one of those examples right. of how dumb the military is <laughs> where yeah, like, right. you know, this ongoing saga with the Space Force. Right. And it seems like actually there's a struggle within the Pentagon over the Space Force. Like there's this three star general um, who says that he was forced to retire by his higher ups, by the higher up brass, because he was advocating for the Space Force. It seems like I think that there's like a faction within the Pentagon that doesn't like the Space Force idea and is trying to shut it down. But then, of course, there's many officers who like the Space Force idea, maybe because it's their career track. And so there's obviously some kind of controversy and struggle over the Space Force uh, within the establishment. I think that the approval now is on on Congress. They've actually uh, given up on the idea that it's going to be a separate branch of the military, but that it's now going to be under the Air Force. But they just revealed their Space Force command logo and insignia. And it's, uh, it's a tiger with wings, and the, the wings, they, you think they look like feathers, but they kind of look like insect wings. And it's flying around in space. So, you know, like the, I don't know why it needs wings in space. Uh, I don't know why it's a tiger in space. Uh, but it's just like, you know, who are the fucking graphic designers working here? I mean, the Pentagon has so much goddamn money, man. Hire a fucking graphic designer. Make a cool Space Force logo. What the fuck? I mean, it, it's, it's a very, it's a very U.S. military thing, though. Like, <laughs> just like, I, I mean, for... Hundreds of years now, uh, symbols have, you know, been more and more devoid of any meaning. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, minus a few uh, certain moments. But, but I mean, but I, in particular, this is just kind of like a, a stark example of like someone sitting in a boardroom saying, oh, man, this would be badass. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I mean, it's like, um, you remember like in basic training, how every platoon like had a platoon mascot? Yes. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> I think we, w- mine was called, we were the uh, the Dark Knights. And so, yeah. We were the yeah. bounty hunters. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So stuff like that. Yeah. And it was like a guy um, in like a yellow Dick Tracy coat or something. Right, weird. Oh, it was okay. like, that's not what a, a bounty hunter, like, like make it like Boba Fett or something. Like why yeah, is it yeah, like yeah, a Fett, Dick Tracy yeah. guy? Um, I was gonna say, you guys should have been called like the uh, the hard boiled detectives or something. It's like the, <laughs> oh, the so dumb. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, ours was like, um, it was like this. Yeah, I mean, like some medieval um, night, but like, but like you know, like the there's like this particular genre uh, of art style. If you go on something like Deviant Art or some right. other, these other sites, like it was like a completely like over the top, like huge armor, huge sword, you know, right. a, a very, I mean, in a way, Freudian depiction of yeah. a, of a knight, but yeah, but no, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's like a, again, you'll, you'll be hard, uh, hard pressed to find a more, uh, glaring example of the stupidity, uh, aesthetically speaking, uh, within the U S military. Yeah. Right. I mean, as, as dumb as the logo is for the space force command, it, it is going to become a real thing. I mean, it's not, it's not just a symbolic, stupid venture, to say that they're creating the Space Force. There is, and it's not that, it doesn't mean that there's going to be like battles in space, but you know, this this idea that space for satellites, like all these things, like it's showing that there's going to be some kind of future confrontation over, in particular with China. Um, But but I think that also like the the work in space is like, is such a great example of how the world should work and how countries and nations do want to come together because, you know, the International Space Station 
there's American scientists and astronauts there. There's Russian, there's Chinese. They're, they're from all over the world. I know all of them who are on the space station, they don't give a shit about whose nation is better and like all these things. Like they're all like, we are like are really in fucking this science and that we need to come together as a world to be able to do this shit together. It's like, instead of your, your country has your space station, this country has their space station, who's going to build the best space station. The, the international space station is we are all like going to make one awesome space station and all work together on it. And I think that's kind of like a really beautiful and like accurate vision of what what we can do as a world um, if it weren't for like this tiny ruling class that's like turning everything into a conflict because they want to like make some profits for themselves. And so that the Space Force is a really bad. I mean, there's so much going on with the space stuff that is is disheartening. Like when they announce now who's going up in the the on, to the International Space Station from the United States, you know, they always release their photo and whatever. I noticed recently that most of them now are no longer NASA astronauts. They're Lockheed Martin astronauts. So they're like yeah. the privatization of space exploration and stuff is uh is really sad, but I think the Space Force is a very bad sign because it means that it's no it's not just being taken over by private corporations that are getting the contracts to send people into space to do the things they normally would. But, you know, Trump is now setting the stage for, um, you know, creating actually conflict over so-called territory and space. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, I think you summed it up pretty nicely. Uh, I mean, the, the whole idea of uh, space itself and space exploration should be predicated, you know, on some notion of peaceful cooperation and uh, you know the 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 joy of scientific discovery uh, mm-hmm. in a collective sense, um, but both like the, the the you know the militarization of a so-called space force before we even have the capability of really ex- <laughs> you know expanding into the far reaches of space is interesting. Number one, I mean, number two, it, it you know the privatization aspect is is quite uh, macabre as well. I mean, you know, I, I'm not one of those. Uh, I think we need to be very careful, like conception of socialism or fully automated luxury, whatever. Oh, yeah. That kind of like the the whole um, uh, like Jetson socialism. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anthony Galuzzo, who, who's um, a scholar whose work I'm quite fond of, he he's criticizes a lot, and, and I'm inclined to agree. You know, you, this becomes a little bit um, problematic because then you run into the the colonialist dimension of space travel. You know, in theory, I mean, of course, it's all, but um. Yeah, in general, though, as as you said, like something like the International Space Station should be seen as like a triumph of, you know, international cooperation and, and you know the the coming together in peaceful ways, uh, and the pursuit of uh, scientific discovery. And yet, you know, here we go with this the space force uh, militarization before the capabilities even there. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, the, the, then you know the Elon Musk's of the world who are trying to make a profit uh, out of this yep. uh, enterprise yep. as well. Uh, speaking of, do you do you know much about that fully automated luxury space communism stuff? I don't. I feel like I don't. I've seen it a lot, and I kind of have a negative kind of. Yeah, it I, I, it's it's just like I, I think number one is just not like it's not based in any factual reality, especially yeah. when you like take into like when you take into account like the climate crisis we're currently uh, embroiled in. Yeah, uh, and and you take into account the productive capacity that would be needed to maintain something uh, of that right. level. Like, what we should be thinking is like you know eco- as varying kinds of ecological s- solutions, and, and mm-hmm. then you know we could get to that where we uh, get cross that bridge when we get there. But you know, as it stands now, it, it's just a pure fantasy um, <laughs> that again it has some actual rather colonial mentalities baked into it. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, 
you know, like I'm a big fan of uh, Ursula Le Guin, a science fiction oh, yeah. author, feminist science sure. fiction author from the, the 60s and 70s. And it's interesting because as a genre, science fiction, um, in particular, I mean, there's a long history behind it, like the the red, uh, uh, the anti-communist purges throughout the 50s in the United States. Like if you couldn't really work in TV, movies, mm-hmm. uh, literature, if you were a communist, right? Except uh, the genre of sci-fi became where everyone went because everyone was purged yeah. from everywhere. And so, that's why like Star Trek was the most progressive show on television, had sure. the first interracial kiss is because the writers were communists and science fiction was the only space left where they could uh, they could live and breathe in a way without being repressed. But from that era too came this genre of, of utopian future novels where all of sci-fi novels then were about it still dealt with the problems of society, but the problems of society in the context of we had advanced past capitalism, we were these utopian, anarchist, uh, classless, communist societies who still deal with the problems that humans deal with, but they were solved in these different ways. Um, And there were these like, amazing utopian visions. And it was an interesting way to think about society and future societies. And then you look now, like if you scroll through Netflix or Hulu and you look for like movies about the future or shows about the future, it's like, uh, in particular, American shows and movies, it's all, everyone becomes cannibals, fucking rapes and murders each other, eats each other, and just does what, screws everyone over to try to survive. Um, (laughs) And it's interesting, there's like this... um, like, and even like movies about the climate disaster. It's all about fend for yourself, have your own tiny little group and just fucking murder the first person who walks up to you because you know what? They might screw you over. So you might as well kill them first. Um, there's like this new movie on Netflix that's Chinese movie called Wandering Planet where it's about and it, to fight the climate change future, the whole world gets together and turns the earth into a giant rocket ship and shoots the earth out of the solar system. And then the whole planet comes together to like make earth oh, be a giant spaceship going through space. So just like so funny how like, capitalist society and the age of like decay that we're in and kind of the horrible state of society cult that has its like cultural expressions and the cultural expressions of the future are these like dark evil futures, but like socialists and socialist societies can imagine uh, something very different. And so I think there's, there's nothing wrong with having a utopian vision of the future, but um, when we're talking about building a a mass movement to defeat capitalism, we're, we're trying to win the working class, oppressed communities, all these things that, um, you know, I think that the maybe the the anti-Marxist or whatever uh, kind of goal of the the luxury automated communism thing as like one day you'll just be able to have like a huge hot tub in your house and ride around in a limousine <laughs> and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, again, like I, I think the utopian impulse is, is perfectly all right. I, I mean, many leftists, I mean, prominently Slavoj Žižek has said like, there, I mean, the reason there's a particular historical moment that, Marx was writing it, and that's why he critiqued the utopian socialists. But mm. having some degree of utopian um, vision might be nece- more necessary uh, now than it ever has been. I mean, we, we need to radically conceive of a future. Um, but yeah, the, the one predicated on you know more consumption and, and, and right. more um, uh, luxurious exuberance. I don't necessarily think uh, is the way out. And you, right. uh, I mean, it is interesting too. Like you mentioned, uh, Star Trek, um, which is. You know, by no means an action show, nor were its movies supposed to be action. Maybe it was about the idea of, you know, exploring new worlds and meeting new beings. Um, and, and the folks over at, like, Red Letter Media, for example, have covered this more mm-hmm. in depth uh, than we have time to here. But, I mean, it is interesting how, like, the Star Trek remakes then were more predicated on, like, action and kind of, like, right. were <laughs> rather indistinguishable from your typical um, blockbuster. But, again, I mean, that's not to go too far on a tangent. Red Letter mm-hmm. Media talks about this extensively. They're fantastic. 
Um, but yeah, in, in general, I think the utopian impulse, I'm glad you brought that up because in one of my classes, uh, we uh, we read um, Benedict uh, Anderson's Imagined Communities, which mm, you know, I, I've right. read in the past, and a very important text. And I, you know, I think everyone kind of reengages with it every now and then because it was so significant. And for him, you know, you know, you and I are talking about this idea of international cooperation. I mean, mm-hmm. the way he framed nationalism was actually quite emancipatory, um, and that you know he saw it more as something akin to uh, you know religion or kinship rather than just. Uh, narrowly confining it to this idea of a particular ideological political formation. And I think that's worth thinking about um, when we look at the ways in how socialism can coexist alongside uh, various conceptions of nationness mm-hmm. or, or uh, nationality. Because, of course, it's not like we could snap our fingers and have a communist international war right. over overnight. It's just not realistic. Um, and, you know, uh, Anderson cites Marx himself saying that it would be uh, incumbent on proletarians to settle their matters with their own national uh, uh, bourgeoisie uh, initially. And part of his point of departure was interrogating what that means and the deficiency in theory at the time in the 70s. But yeah, I mean, I think for him, he, he saw a, what he could refer to as the utopian component of nationalism, mm. again, and ha- as he understood it as this um, imagined community of people, he saw something quite profound in that. Um, and, and I think, you know, as leftists, we need to you know, in a utopian sense, think about how we are going to relate to our fellow man, how we are, you know, if Bernie Sanders gets uh, elected to president, that's great. That's one step closer to socialism. How do we um, uh, take that up on the international order? How do we relate, you know, realistically in the world we live? Again, I would love it if we could pull a lever and everything's communism and there's no more borders Mm -hmm. and we live in a completely international, but as it stands now, you know, the nation state is, um, uh, the function of how the international order is carried out. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's also historically contingent. It's not like it had to go that way. The colonial reality by no means had to go that way, but here we are, and we need to find a way to grapple with that. And I think some degree of uh, utopian aspiration might be necessary. You know, that was the reason for Engels writing socialism, utopian, and scientific. It was sure. uh, giving a real scientific basis for how socialism can be developed because there were utopian socialists at the time that created communes on their own that said, you know what, we can build, we live in a capitalist country, but instead of wasting our time struggling to overthrow capitalism and build a new side, like we're just actually going to go off into the mountains and just build our own socialist utopia. Um, and there were some that were, you know, very effective. They had factories, they had store, they and they, they functioned completely autonomously in their little uh, utopian socialist bubble. Um, but you know that none of them are still here today. They all went away because they existed in a larger context and didn't really have the components of changing uh, society and really of revolution. It wasn't a revolu- revolutionary uh, force that was based on. Uh, the science of change, of dialectic materialism and and all that stuff, which uh, is too much to get into on this pod. But since we're on the topic of dystopia, Spencer, on our last episode, we talked to Jasper Craven about all the privatization of the VA and all the crazy things Trump was doing uh, to veterans, like zapping our brains and appointing this beer mogul to our mental health stuff. And we talked about a lot of the little things that are, are happening around that. But one of the new things that just happened is this new story that Trump has ordered a lot of ketamine for veterans who are dealing with depression and suicidal thoughts. Uh, ketamine as in, you know, the horse tranquilizer drug that uh, people sometimes do at, at parties and stuff like that. <laughs> God, yeah. I mean, ketamine is like, it's it's called a, a recreational hallucinogen. And it's, right. um, you know, it's... Uh, 
It's just one of these things that like it, the, the clinical try, like, you know, there's obvious, there's definitely uh, people in the, even in the VA who advocate for certain types of drug use to use with uh, PTSD treatment. Sure. Uh, psilocybin, otherwise known as uh, mushrooms. So there's some like that advocate the use of Molly and some kind of therapies, which I, I, I'm much more skeptical of than the psilocybin thing. I think that actually can have many positive effects. But the ketamine thing is like, there's not really any real uh, basis for this being justified. In fact, the clinical trials that were used to justify selling, basically dealing ketamine to the VA and the government giving you know contracts at ketamine producers to the VA, people actually commit suicide in the clinical trials who were on the ketamine. And then the ones that didn't take the ketamine in the clinical trials, there were no suicides. I mean, so it's, it's not only is it like a spurious uh, treatment, but I mean, there were actual suicides in the clinical trials that were used to justify this kind of drug deal that Trump has organized. Yeah, I, I mean, and, uh, Trump himself, uh, you know, he, he's quite clear in saying that the, the purchase of this uh, ketamine, um, as Trump, you know, says, he said, there's a product that's made right now that just come out by, uh, that just came out by Johnson & Johnson. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, <laughs> I mean, this is, it's quite glaring. I mean, Johnson & Johnson is, without question, one of the leading purveyors of the current opioid crisis. Oh I mean, my God, you're right. And uh, it, it's important to note, again, to tie Sanders back into this and why he matters. Um, on August 27th, he tweeted that, under my legislation, the Opioid Crisis Accountability Act, Johnson & Johnson would be fined $7.8 billion, 13 times as much as this penalty, about half of the company's profits, and 10% of the total annual cost of the terrible opioid crisis afflicting our country. I mean, listen— when you have someone like Sanders, who, as he says, wants to see the corporate executives at Johnson and Johnson, Purdue, and other companies held criminally liable for their actions, as he said, I mean that's significant. And when the sitting president is openly just discussing, you know, making deals with an unsavory company like Johnson and Johnson in such a way, and, and this is a deal wherein you know the healthcare of veterans and, of course, the healthcare of every American and uh, everyone in this country, um, every single person who, for better or worse, is living here, when their health care is in the hands of a figure such as this, uh, as Trump. I mean, I mean, it's quite, it, it's just completely perverse. And the VA in particular it makes it even more absurd because, you know, Trump ran as this patriotic figure and, you know, all of this nonsensical rhetoric by the right wing. It's like, they don't care. Mm -hmm. I mean, th th again, this is all driven by the profit motive. I mean, that's really what it, and what I say that is, of course, and the obvious, the obvious thing is that Johnson Johnson is making tremendous profits, but also on the other side of that transaction, someone like Trump and uh, those of his political persuasion, they think that they can solve these issues just by buying more stuff. I mean, this idea mm -hmm. of consumption, you know, the profit motive, consumption, purchasing, that this can be a solution to whether it's um, veterans healthcare or healthcare writ large, I mean, kind of shows how all of this is completely um, a shallow engagement uh, at best. And really what's actually happening is it's a refusal to acknowledge the true nature of the situation. Yeah, it's just so disgusting how many people are in U.S. prison for selling drugs. Um, right. You know, of course, we have the largest prison population in the world, and that's not per capita. That's 
numbers, meaning that we have more people in prison than China, whose population is like four times bigger than the United States. But anyway, you know, so many people in jail for small drug dealing offenses, yet Johnson & Johnson, uh, companies like Purdue Pharma, which is one of the big uh, opiate manufacturers who not only knew that it was addictive and going to kill people, but they worked that into their business plan. They decided where to put uh, pill farms and things like that based on where there was heroin addiction and things like that. You know, it's not just that they can get away with it, but that it's just facilitated by the government and they're getting like government money uh, to do this shit. And, and I'm glad you brought up the opiate stuff too, Spencer, because I wanted to, you know, bring up something that uh, was written by a listener of Eyes Left, uh, Stephen Kiernan, who's written into the show before. He was a Marine uh, in Fallujah who uh, actually lost his legs in Fallujah. Um, he's a great writer. He's he's writing uh, fiction. He actually wrote recently a satirical piece titled uh, All Your Base Are Belong to Us that you should look up. Um, you can find him on Twitter at MSG to Observer, like message to Observer with abbreviated message as in MSG. But anyways, he tweeted uh, recently, you know, remember that Marine Corps recruitment video where it's like the guy who fights the lava monster oh, with yeah. a sword <laughs> and goes through the obstacle course? Hell so yeah. he, he tweeted that video of that commercial and said, this was me. I know he's fighting in a big arena, the guy with the sword, like obstacle course arena, and he fights this dragon, right? He said, right. this was me in the video, except the arena was getting my legs blown off in a pointless war, and the dragon was an 11-year opiate addiction, courtesy of military doctors. And so it, not only, you know, the, to go through the, the effect of that insane physical loss and, and trial and struggle, but to then your treatment, and this is true for people coming back with, with mental and physical wounds, to then the treatment be to be put on these drugs that are known to be addictive, like ketamine and like opiates, uh, at least to this entirely new period of struggle that you have to go through. You not only have to uh, be able to come through what you've been through, but, but also how much that is delayed and hindered by the, the kind of cheap, shitty, irresponsible way that the military decides to treat people. And it's these, and it's this dual thing also, because of course I know many people who need, who say, you know, opiates are, you know what, I wouldn't be able to survive without opiates because it is a, a, an important painkiller and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, it's a, there's a two-sided thing to it. And this is why I think it's important for people to watch um, a Bernie Sanders interview on Joe Rogan. It was so good. I mean, it's like, you don't normally get to see Bernie in that format, just like an hour straight, just kind of talking and speaking in a way that he knows he's talking to people that are likely going to disagree with him. But he talked about something really interesting. You know, Joe Rogan, of course, is a uh, you know, big proponent of legalizing drugs and responsible drug use and things like that. And so Rogan confronted Bernie about, you know, why can't, why can't you just say now you'll legalize all drugs? Because Bernie's for uh, legalizing marijuana and releasing everyone from jail who's in, char- who's in jail for marijuana conviction, expunging their records. And not only that, but con- uh, communities that have been hit hard by the war on drugs— of oppressed communities that the weed industry has to, profits have to go into the communities that were hit hard by the war on drugs, which is like a pretty um, kind of amazing campaign thing also. But Joe confronted him and said, hey, you're just for legalizing marijuana. People are going to buy cocaine anyway. They're going to buy ketamine anyway. They're going to buy opiates. They're going to buy heroin anyway. Why don't you just legalize all drugs and so people can get these things safely and they're getting things that are produced responsibly and not whatever. And Bernie said he wasn't for legalizing all of those drugs. And the reason he gave is, he's like, why are so many people addicted to drugs? It's not just that the drugs are addictive. Of course, that's a big part of it. Cocaine's very addictive. Opiates are very addictive. But there's something else. There's something that he referred to as 
diseases of despair. It's not just that drug addiction is through the roof right now. And it's not just opiates. It's, it's not just the opiate phenomenon. Many people are, people are addicted to other drugs in higher numbers now. Suicides are at a higher rate than they have been in decades. And the reason is because of these diseases of despair. It's people seeing that they don't have a purpose. They don't have a future. They're walking through their neighborhood and, and stores are boarded up. Then their neighborhood is dilapidated. If you're seeing really nice police stations being built, but all low-income housing is infested with mold and leaks. If you have a sense of being wrong or betrayed by your government, like those of us who were sent to war. If you're swimming in debt, like so many of us are from student loans and from foreclosure and things like that. If you see just misery and neglect all around you in your community. Uh, there's no social connections in our society anymore. Where everyone's so alienated. They're socially isolated. Um, and so it's the combination of the addictive potential of drugs and the easy access to drugs and how doctors are prescribing them, but also your existence, your everyone's existence involves a lot of despair and demoralization and isolation. And so it's the cocktail of those things together. It's not your fault if you're suffering these diseases of despair. Uh, of course, mental health care, uh, which is really hard to get anyway, uh, is a really big part of coming out of that. Um, but being able to have the support from people around you and, and community, and also having a healthy community in general, is just as important. And this system, instead of providing a space for those things, for a healthy community where you see positivity instead of experiencing alienation, they want to replace space for that by giving you just some fucking ketamine and legal heroin uh, to replace it. And just understanding that can help you find the community, the spaces, the healthy tactics to heal and overcome because they exist. It just takes getting yourself off the path of isolation uh, that this system puts you on. Yeah, I mean, this this is um, without question one of the most alienating times uh, to be alive. I mean, the, the theory of alienation for me is one of, you know, Marx's greatest contributions, you know, going back to his... 1844 economic and philosophic manuscripts. And as someone who um, is in the tradition of, you know, the Marxist humanist bent, with, you know, associated with figures such as Eric Fromm, I think uh, that any economic analysis is rather shallow if it doesn't consider the, um, the very, you know, human, psychological, emotional, even spiritual impact uh, of uh, alienation wrought by capitalist society. So again, I think Pernie articulating that is quite significant because He's dealing, you know, on the one hand at the level of policy uh, and policy agenda, but on the other hand, he, he's also tapping into um, the very uh, human uh, experiential side uh, of policy and, and how those are going to be impacted um, by all of these uh, these uh, various proposals um, should he uh, get elected, which, again, I'm very uh, confident of and I really, inshallah, we'll see, uh, we'll see happen. You've been listening to Eyes Left with Spencer Rapone. And Mike Preisner. All of our content is free for everyone, but we can't do it without your help. So if you support this project, go to patreon.com slash eyes left to make it possible to continue. Be sure to follow us on social media at eyes left pod. And if you're in the military, a military family member or veteran and want to share your story, report problems and mismanagement, or need advice or assistance knowing your rights, including your right to get the hell out or refuse deployment, please write us at eyesleftpod at gmail.com. Eyes left.